There are so many people in this room today. Uh, I have a list that is very long of what some would call VIPs. Um, in my mind, in Chicago, I think the fact that we get to live in this great city, we're all VIPs, right? Uh, but there's a few people that I think I am obliged to recognize. Uh, one being King Harris. Chicago institution, um, not just King, but his family and everyone else. I see Arnold gets the pleasure of sitting next to him. And is Israel here? His name is down, but I don't see him. Okay, well, he's not here. All right. Oh, he is here? Israel Rook, are you here? Okay, he's on his way. This is going to start being like uh, when we pull the name. If you're not here, you don't get announced. <laughs> um, but thank you all so, so much for being here today. Again, we do not take for granted anyone who's in this room. We know that you've taken time out. Historically, the City Club of Chicago met for 90 minutes. It was 100 and some years ago, and I promise you, no one that looked like me was in the room. Um, but they meet for 90 minutes, and they talk about issues in Chicago, and then they go back to lunch. That is what we are designed to do. That's what we are designed to be. Uh, we are going to try to stay true to that mission. Uh, but, you know, I'm so glad to know that if you look to your left or if you look to your right, and I did not take that from my pastor, but if you, some of you guys get that, right? It's a little cultural. Um, if you look to your left or you look to your right, this room looks totally different than it did a hundred and some years ago. aim is to look like Chicago and Chicago land, and our vice chair, Dan Gibbons, reminds me of that all the time, and um, that is our mission and our goal. Um, I am going to introduce one person on this panel, and then we are going to move. Um, Adrian will carry it from there. Uh, Deborah Gorman-Smith is the Emily Klein Gidwitz Professor and Dean of the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice. She is also the Practice Investigator and Director of the Chicago Center for Youth Violence Prevention, one of six national academic centers of excellence funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The center, based at the Crown Family School, is devoted to studying and stemming the underlying causes of youth violence through, through evidence-based collaborative interventions that focus on family and communities, linking them with schools, the justice system, social service agencies, and policymakers. She has published several in area. She has published extensively in areas related to youth and family development, including the relationship between neighborhood characteristics, family functioning, and risk and the effects of family-focused, school-based, and community-level violence prevention programs. She is an elected member of the American Academy of Social Work and Social Warfare, Social Welfare, not Warfare, a current fellow <laughs> and the past president of the Society for Prevention Research. Before she comes up, let me just say there are cards on the table. If you have questions, if you're smart, you've already written your question out, and one of our folks will get them, MB or Amanda or someone will grab the question for you. Um, if you get your question in, we are going to do our very, very best to get to them, but it's a panel, and you know they're going to have a lot to say. Can't wait to hear them. And then... Um, I think Dan took care of the rest of the housekeeping. So uh, at this time, I'm going to ask Deborah Gorman-Smith to come up. It is. It's a big step. We're working on it. We're working on it. Do you need these? No, I'm good. Okay. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank 
you. Um, I am extremely pleased to welcome you here today. Um, as you've heard, this is the first of a new series of events co-hosted by the Crown Family School and the City Club of Chicago. Our goal is to bring together civic leaders, academics, and community members for conversations toward building a stronger and more vibrant Chicago. Over the next year, we'll examine the many ways that we can work together to solve big problems using research, evidence-based policies, and direct action. I want to thank Jackie, Amanda, and the entire City Club team for their partnership around this series and for creating a space where we can engage in productive conversations focused on addressing some of our city's most pressing social challenges. At the Crown Family School, we tackle tough social problems like economic opportunity and income inequality, and today's topic on the role of guaranteed income pilots could not be more timely or more promising in its potential to strengthen communities. Our Office of Community Partnership and Impact supports strategic partnerships like this one with Cook County that brings together leaders in government, academia, and the community to address these pressing social issues impacting our city. We know that the right mix of leadership, vision, and research can transform communities and entire cities. And success is possible when leaders, policymakers, and committed communities join hands to make systemic changes. I want to recognize and thank the many individual organizations here today who are working hard every day to make both the city and the county's guaranteed income pilots a success. I especially want to recognize our partners, the University of Chicago's Inclusive Economy Lab, for their tireless work and collaboration. Today you'll have a chance to learn how policymakers, community leaders, and researchers at universities like the University of Chicago are working to ensure greater economic stability for more Chicago residents. We have much to share and learn from each other, and so again, thank you all for joining us today and for your interest in this important topic. And with that, I will hand the mic over to Adrian Talbot, the Crown Family School's Associate Dean for Civic Engagement, who will moderate today's conversation. Thank you. Sure. Good morning. Afternoon. Afternoon. Happy lunch. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Jackie. And thanks to all of you for being here today for this special conversation about guaranteed income and its role in strengthening communities. I really cannot think of a better group of panelists than this one with whom to have this conversation. So please join me in thanking and welcoming Dr. Shante Robinson of the Crown Family School. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. And former mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs. Here, here.
Michael, I want to um, start the conversation with you, and I want to acknowledge how far you've traveled in such a short time. Michael took a red-eye flight from San Francisco last night, and while we hold you responsible for single-handedly bringing in the Chicago winter with your arrival, <laughs> uh, we're grateful for the effort you made to be here today. In 2016, at the age of 26, you were elected the youngest ever mayor of a large American city. In Stockton, you put into practice the first ever mayor-led guaranteed income pilot and have since gone on to found an organization called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, which is a network of mayors doing similar work in communities across the country. We'll get to that work in your time in office and your view on the movement from here, but I actually want to start, if we may, by asking you about your childhood. I think your personal story provides important context on the conditions that make guaranteed income a potentially effective tool to address poverty. If you would, and I feel comfortable asking you this because you've written such a good book about this, and we'll talk more about that. Tell us about your childhood. What did it teach you about the broader social forces that impact individuals' economic security? And how did it shape your view of the role that government can play in addressing poverty? Let's start with an easy question, why don't we? After the run of <laughs> a two-part or two, boy. It wasn't easy. Um, but, but first of all, so great to be back in Chicago. Um, I'm, Thank you for coming. No, I'm here because... No, she, wait, 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 wait. She says that because she knows I'm afraid of her. <laughs> uh, so... Adrian had reached out about coming to Chicago, and I was just not... I saw the email, but I said, if I don't respond, he'll stop emailing. And then I get on the call with Madam President, and we're talking about something else, and then before she leaves, I have a question for you. I was like, here it comes. She's like, will you come? I'm I'm there. So I'm so happy happy to be here. Um, And thank you, Adrian, and and, and thank you, um, um, Madam President. In in terms of the question, um, I grew up in circumstances like the thousands of people who applied for the city and county's guaranteed income program and like the hundreds of thousands of people who applied and needed but didn't get it because we haven't got to policy yet. Uh, my mom worked incredibly hard, but she had me as a teenager. She was 16 when she was pregnant with me. Uh, my father was incarcerated, has been incarcerated for 30 of the 32 years I've been alive. Um, so, so much of this idea of poverty being a personal failure just seemed foreign to me. I remember my first class at Stanford. It was an urban underclass, and we were talking about poverty. And my classmates would say things like, people were poor because they were lazy, or people were poor because they were dumb, or people were poor because they chose to be poor. And I was just so confused. I had never, I was like, I thought of my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, my neighbors, my friends, and... My mom was the hardest working person I've ever met. Like, she never took a mental health day. I never saw her get her nails done. I never saw her go to the spa. I never saw her take a vacation. In fact, her vacation days were used for when I was sick, right? I I, I saw her work all week and then take extra shifts on weekends. I saw her sort of make $10 last for two weeks. I saw her go to the check cashing place, not because... She was trying to buy a, a Louis purse, but because she, she got paid on the 15th, but the bills were due the 12th, and she had to make sure the bills were, were, were paid. I, I saw 
my grandmother and, and my aunt take me to the homeless shelter to serve or the convalescent home every Saturday. So the narrative around folks who were poor was so foreign to me. But it seemed in every room like this I was in, whether as a college student or then as a city council member or then as a mayor, that the conversation was different, that people like my mom, my aunt, and grandmother were the problem and, and, and not the solution, that, that, that they were the cause of all the ills. And then, particularly as I used to teach, the conversation we would have about children um, born in poverty also felt very foreign to me. I would be in staff meetings all the time and say, no, I was that child. You have no idea who you're teaching. Someone's bank account has no bearing on their... Now, y'all see what Elon Musk is doing on Twitter. Like, someone's bank account has no bearing (laughs) on one's intelligence, one's intellect. And we know, given the history of this country, that, in fact, wealth is created not just through effort and hard work, but actually markets manipulated to be racist and sexist and provide opportunity for some and deny access and opportunities for a whole lot of other folks. So to answer your question, I think growing up really illustrated to me that government can't do everything. Like, it's not government's job to motivate people. It's not government's job to, to, to I- inspire people. But I also believe that the vast majority of people don't need to be motivated not to be poor. The vast majority of people don't need a speech or a conference to, to, to get tired of poverty, right? Like, I, I think at the very least, government has a responsibility to create inequities that government created. And I think that's what guaranteed income is about. It's about government correcting government action. And it's actually the least we can do, given the 400 years of a history of genocide and land theft and human trafficking and, and folks paying into a system but then being denied benefits for, for, for hundreds of years or not able to get loans for housing or their neighborhoods. Once they do everything right, their neighborhoods they become redlined and their property becomes less valuable. Even like the history of this city in terms of restricted covenants and in terms of sort of um, robbing black folks of, of, of wealth through manipulating the housing market really illustrates to me that government at the very least has to correct what government has, has, has caused. And, and I'll conclude with, with saying that when we say that poverty is a policy choice, that's not a platitude. It's a fact. When we say that we have an economy that pays people poverty wages, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. In this country, there's not one city, one county where the minimum wage in the area is enough to pay for a two-bedroom apartment. That's not effort. That's not ability. That's not merit. That's policy, right? So, so that's my answer. <laughs> a great segue, President Preckwinkle, to a question I wanted to ask you. I think we are all pretty familiar with the really profound ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated social inequality in our communities. I've heard you say several times in recent months that you think government, and local government in particular, is up to meet this moment. And so I'm curious why of all the policy tools that you have at your disposal, I guess including the capacity to scare Michael Tubbs into coming to Chicago. (laughs) Not a bad thing. (laughs) Pretty effective. Why guaranteed income? Why is this the primary tool that you're using, along with your team, to address the impacts of the pandemic? And if you would, walk us through the county's pilot, its basic parameters, and what we can expect to see in the months ahead. 
A simple question. Thank you. <laughs> so first of all, I, I want to begin by um, thanking President Biden and, and Congress for the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA. As all of you in this room probably know, um, the county got a billion dollars to help recover from the pandemic. The city got $2 billion, and the state of Illinois got $16 billion. Um, it's the biggest investment that the federal government has ever made in our residents and uh, our local governments in about 100 years since the Great Depression. So we have resources that we haven't had um, for my, most of my lifetime, <laughs> all of my lifetime, uh, at local government. And um, I just want to thank Lynetta Haynes-Turner. I, I don't believe she's here, but uh, my chief of staff, when we, when we got this resource, we talked about how we would um, best invest it. And I, I want to talk about the way in which we're using the resources as investments. Um, and, and her um, comment was, we have, to, we have to do a lot more outreach to figure out um, where people are, um, not just our commissioners, not just the advocates that we work with all the time, not just our delegate agency community, but to the people as a whole, to figure out kind of what's on their mind and, and um, what, how they want to see us invest this money. So we did a lot of town hall meetings with our commissioners. There was a survey of county residents. Anybody could participate. I think 3,000 people did, which is pretty good. Um, we did a lot of work to try to touch as many people as we could and ask them, uh, where we needed to be investing this money. And the, the first thing that came up, frankly, was behavioral health investments. Uh, Dr. Joshi is here from our Cook County Department of Public Health. I'm sure that doesn't surprise him. But um, across the board, whatever community, wherever you went, affluent communities, communities that have historically struggled, uh, people said the pandemic has exacerbated our behavioral health challenges. <coughs> whether it's um, depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's uh, opioid addiction. And by the way, um, more people died last year in Cook County of opioid addiction than accidents and murders combined. Um, so behavioral health was the first thing that we said we needed to invest in, and that, as I said, came from everywhere. And then as we talked to advocates and folks that we work with in a variety of social justice arenas, the other thing that bubbled up, of course, was, uh, was guaranteed income. And the third thing is medical debt. So we're only going to talk about guaranteed income today, but I want to acknowledge that this was a three-legged stool in terms of where people felt we really needed to make investments. Now, um, I have to say I'm a history teacher. Um, you know, Martin Luther King talked about guaranteed income 50 years ago. And so did the Black Panthers. Actually, the Black Panthers said everybody ought to have a guaranteed job by the government or guaranteed income. Um, and, of course, they were right. Uh, and they got assassinated for it. But that's another story. Anyway, um, I think it's really important that we, as a, as a country, commit to supporting our people. You know, I, I taught geography, history and geography. And I would always ask my students, okay, what's the most important resource any country has? And, you know, the, the kids would say gold or some kind of precious metal or sometimes they would say oil or the ones who were thinking a little further ahead would say water. But as we, as we talked more and more about it, um, we would come down to the most important resource any country has is its people. And we don't in this country invest in our people. We surely don't invest in our families uh, but we don't invest in our people more broadly. 
And this is a way for us to invest in our people, to provide some financial stability uh, for folks. And I would just say we've got 3,250 people in this pilot. And we had, I don't know where Pete Zaboviak is, our, our lead person on this, I think 240,000 people applied or something like that. Close, okay. More than 200,000, how that, that's safe. More than 200,000 people applied. And we set the threshold at 250% of poverty. And we had, I think, 36% of the people of Cook County would have been eligible for the program. Now, in this room, that might be astonishing to you, but 36% of the people in Cook County would have been eligible for this program. And that, you know, we have tremendous inequality in this country, tremendous inequality, and as the mayor has said, it's been driven by public policy, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And since government is implicit in the inequities that we see, government has to work to address those inequities. And that's the goal of our guaranteed income pilot. We want to be part of the national movement um, that, that provides momentum uh, to this idea, this program, in the hopes that the federal government will decide that this is what needs to be done across the country. Uh, because, frankly, the federal government is the only entity that has the resources to do this across the country. This has to be a federal initiative. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll see the same kind of positive results that we saw in Stockton and elsewhere in the country in our program, and that we'll be part of what will become a national chorus, that this is federal action that needs to be, be taken. And I'm grateful to all my staff who've worked so hard on this, uh, and to our, our partners uh, who've come to the table with us to, uh, to help us implement it. So. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning uh, results, which brings us, Dr. Robinson, to this issue of uh, impact. I want to ask you, um, I think we've heard from a lot of elected officials who are leading guaranteed income pilots that they're committed to do the work rooted in data and guided by evidence. You're working with our partners at the Inclusive Economy Lab on a really robust and thoughtful research agenda. Can you tell us what are the big questions you're asking? How are you going about asking them and answering them? And what can we all hope to learn from the work you are doing? Certainly. Thank you all for having me here. And I'd like to also acknowledge that there are three public school educators here on the stage. All three of us had our beginnings in teaching high school. And so everything I say will be embedded in my historical past of teaching some of the most marginalized young people to chase their dreams and knowing that for me it, it was it was made possible by, by education. And for a lot of them, that's where they're putting their entire stock as well. So when we think about initiatives and programs like the Cook County Promise and how those programs sometimes often become policy, we want to make sure that our policies are embedded in evidence-based research. Now, why is that? Why do we, why do we care about how research is informing policy? It's mainly because we don't want policy to be governed and created through ideology. And I have some students in the room who may say, well, didn't you tell us in class that all policy is ideology? Yes, and. Yes, and, right? So there's always the and. Yes, and. The difference is the ideologies that are pushed by good research are also ones that are embedded in theory and sound research design. 
And that's the difference. And that's something to be embraced. So some of the questions we're looking at in evaluating and, and creating really strong, rigorous uh, research evaluations for the Cook County Promise is we have to figure out what kind of questions we want to ask of the program and of the people who will be benefiting and for those who perhaps will not be benefiting from the program this first go-round, this first pilot series. Part of that is about family, investment. How do you plan to invest this money? And that's not a judgment question. That's truly an exploratory question of how will people use this money, right? And then we ask questions about confidence. Confidence not just in themselves, of they can reach the goals that they set for themselves and their families, but confidence in government, confidence in their connection to government systems and how they see that changing potentially with this new government initiative, right? And we also look at hope and determination for the future. We also look at what other government programs are they, ta- are, they, are they currently enrolled in? And we do that because we want to know how does this program compare, right? In the application, in the, 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 the what do you call it, implementation of how they get the money, and then the outcomes of that. So it's a multi-tiered, mixed-method, multiple-method project, a lot of moving parts all at once that includes a randomized controlled trial, it includes impact evaluations, it includes a really rigorous qualitative component, which I lead, uh, which includes semi-structured interviews. I can go into very much detail about all of this and would love to any given time you all have lunch again. (laughs) Just a hint there. But... uh, but a lot of people coming together to create an evaluation that will push policy in ways that are embedded in people's experiences, people's lived experiences, and as Madam President was saying, the role of government in righting the wrongs of previous policy. Thanks, Dr. Robinson. I want to remind folks, if you have questions, please write them down, hand them over to Amanda uh, and the staff here, and we'll try to work them in at the end. I want to zoom out real quick, uh, Mayor Tubbs, and ask you um, about what's going on across the country. I think um, the idea, as President Preckwinkle said, of a guaranteed income is not a new one. Martin Luther King, as as far back as over a half century ago, was advocating for direct cash payments. But in recent years, the idea has gained a tremendous amount of momentum. Guaranteed income pilots are now active in 100 communities. Over 80 mayors across the country have embraced them. 100 now. 100 now. How did this idea, once a quixotic notion of a small group of progressives, become a national movement? And where does that movement go from here? Yeah. Um, Well, actually, um, given we have a history teacher um, on the stage, Thomas Paine. Um, talked about guaranteed income as a founding father in the Grain Revolution. He talked about the need to provide everyone with some sort of floor. In addition to Dr. King and the Black Panthers, there is a, a black woman, Johnny Tillman, the National Welfare Organization, um, which also called for a guaranteed income because of the ways in which sort of the welfare system as it was administered denied women agency and the ability to make decisions um, 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 for themselves. And actually, even more interestingly, Richard Nixon, oversaw municipal guaranteed income experiments across this country. And it was almost going to be a policy. Like, he was thinking about doing a negative income to earn income tax credit to make it a policy. 
but for um, one of his advisors going back to some study done in England during the 1400s where they gave folks, when they gave peasants money and the peasants stopped working for nothing and used that as this idea that this would disincentivize work, which is still a trope that we're fighting with, with, with today. So this notion is actually deeply rooted in the American experience. In every century, a, a thinker or a group of people, folks are like, well, hey, maybe the way to help people without money is to give them money. Um, and, and, um, and 50 years later, here we are. But, but in, in terms of today, I think it's, it's a couple things. Um, the biggest thing being the intersection, not just of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also the George Floyd protest. And, and I say that because that's how mayors for a guaranteed income started. Um, we were all in thinking about how are we responsive to this moment where people are in the streets demanding that something has to be bigger and better. And I remember where Dr. King talked about guaranteed income and where do we go from here, his last book. That was written at a time when there were 120 racial protests, racial justice protests in this country. So it wasn't like it was like a nice, calm environment where he wrote this book and said we need a guaranteed income. It was a time of much turmoil and, and, and people demanding more, much like we saw in 2020. So I think it was in that backdrop, sort of elected officials became more expansive in their thinking because during the pandemic, they're like, we've got to give people stuff so they stay home and shelter in place. But also I think a little bit more courageous and bold in saying we have to do something to address the structure, structural violence. It's not just enough to address kind of police violence. We have to talk about those who are most impacted by police violence are also the most impacted by the violence of poverty, by lack of opportunity, by terrible schools, by failing infant. Like, the list goes on and on and on. So I think those two things collided and created a moment where, where folks were able to be more expansive and say, well, why, why, let's try something else because what's happening now isn't working. And then... In addition to the alignment of elected officials, you had folks receiving checks from President Trump. I, mean, like, I don't think y'all remember. Remember, Trump held up the checks and said, mm-hmm. do not give out one check unless my name is on it. <laughs> like, I, don't want, I want everyone to know I'm giving people money. Mm-hmm. And it became like, oh, wow. And there was no debate. Folks were protesting elections, tried to do a coup on the Capitol. But no one protested the stimulus checks. No one was burning their... Even people that know they didn't deserve it because they made more money than the year before and had the PPP loans and everything still were taking their stimulus checks and their child tax credit. So I think people were receiving cash for the first time. And I think all those things collided and created an environment where um, the, the moment matched... The, the, the energy matched the moment. And I would also say, particularly in Chicago... Um, the leadership of, of, of Madam President, but also Economic Security Project Illinois. I remember being here in 2017, when we, or 18, when we had just announced that we were doing a pilot in Stockton before we did it, and the Chicago Trust had a task force set up, thinking about, okay, what would the guaranteed income look like in, in, in Chicago? And I, my good friend Sarah is here from Give Directly, and they have been doing cash disbursements, not just in the United States, but across the country, across the world. Um, so I think there was a lot of work happening before, um, and I have to give a shout out to the Economic Security Project broadly, who funded the Stockton work, who has a group called the Communities of Practice of non-government leaders who are, who are doing um, guaranteed income pilots. I think sort of the leadership of elected officials, we have 100 mayors, and the leadership of, mayor, uh, of Madam President next year will be launching a counties um, for a guaranteed income um, counterpart. Um, so that was a long answer to say the pandemic and racial justice. No, it's helpful. 
It's helpful, not least because you've helped us understand that there's really a confluence of factors at play here that give guaranteed income real potential to dismantle poverty. Um, there are surely challenges in front of us. And I wonder, President Preckwood... Wait, wait, can I say one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, because I think, I I can see thought bubbles in people's head, like this seems like another 50 years it's going to take. But remember, literally last year, we had a child tax credit, which was a guaranteed income for families with children. And we did that at scale. So every family making $150,000 or less, which wasn't everybody, but it was a whole lot of families. And we were only one vote in the Senate short of that becoming law last year. So when we talk about movement and momentum, it's not like a 50-year, it's literally a child tax credit that we tried, that we've studied, that people are, have campaigned on, that we are one vote away, we're, 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 we're a couple votes in the House away now from that being policy, and that's how close we are, and I think that's why there's an urgency to this conversation. I think that's why there's an urgency to this moment. I think that's why you have leaders going big and bold and saying, no, we're going to show you we can do it locally, because we were one vote short of a national guaranteed income, at least for families with children in this country, just last year. And just to add, just to add, research at the time showed Statistic analyses showed that that one intervention kept millions and millions of families out of poverty. Children. Children out of poverty. Just like that. And just like Mayor Tubbs says, it can be that, it can be one election cycle away from happening. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you brought it up. Stop stop reading our thought bubbles. But you bring up this question about sustainability. I think we all are excited by federal programs that come online, and you've promised that the Promise Pilot will be sustained. How does a program like this one, which right now is funded by a one-time injection of federal funds, become a permanent one? Well, we've committed our our cannabis resources uh, to the program, and we're looking for other revenue streams. Uh, but our commitment is that we'll continue the program after the pilot. Um, we're, we're assuming that we're going to see good results. Thank you. Um, and, and make the case for it. But we've committed, we've committed resources to continuing the program. That's great. Thanks. And we all have a role to play. I think we probably have time for, for one more. Wait, I'm sorry. I, uh, I'm going oh. to let you do your job. But I just want to underscore that because it's easy to do pilots with someone else's money in particular. Like, it ain't my money, it's federal government. Run it, go ahead. The fact that there's a commitment from Cook County and the leadership in Cook County to identify a revenue stream is actually sort of further along than 99% of other cities and counties in this country. So I know we talk about things that aren't working, but I think we should all take a moment and just acknowledge the leadership, the foresight, and the real commitment beyond the pilot to make something happen for folks in poverty in Cook County. So thank you um, for your leadership. I'm going to ask, do you you want to add one thing? I'm going to add. Absolutely. History, teachers, that's what we do. You think (laughs) it, he'll say it. That's right. (laughs) 
so, so thinking about all of us in this room having this conversation about guaranteed basic income and how we go back to our, our home lives and we talk about this progressive liberal thing that the, that the county's doing, right? Uh, we're, we're engaging in this public sphere around this really radical intervention. And just think when FDR did Social Security, it was also radical. It was also this progressive liberal idea that was linked to socialism. And, Communism. And co- all, all the isms <laughs> thrown in there, right? Making up isms to throw at him. And now it's, it's seen as something that if you try to take it away, you're not going to win political office. Now it's called a, quote, entitlement, right? So we're not that far off from having these kind of conversations in these spaces to having a larger public sphere of people engaging around this common language of guaranteed basic income and what we owe to our children and our families and what we owe a debt to in terms of our past wrongs that have been created by policies that were exclusive and exclusionary. I just wanted to add that. And, and Okay. <laughs> no, no, because I uh, thank you for, for bringing throw, that up, Doctor. Let's do it. Be, because we call things like radical or, or kind of far out there or will never happen. But I think, as um, the chair of the Chicago Club said in her intro, like this room just 50 years ago is a radical notion. This panel. Hell, in some parts of the country today, this panel, and who are the panelists, who, who are the leadership and the experts, is a radical notion. Just 100 years ago, women voting, much less being office holders, was, was a radical notion. And, and I think it's important when we look towards the future to, to understand that the future is going to look back at the present and say, they thought this was radical? And, and I think we take for granted that, that what we enjoy today was someone's imagination, someone saying we can do more, someone demanding us to be more civilized, more, more, more in tune with each other's common humanity. And I think that's what's so powerful about like, guaranteed income. Is that, and if uh, 50 years from now, it will be looked upon as like, I can't believe this was controversial. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they had to have 100 studies that said the same thing. People <laughs> spend money the way people spend money. Money makes people happy. Money makes people less stressed. Money lets people pay for childcare so they can go to work. Like I, I, I think to just to underscore, like what we consider radical today will be seen so mundane and obvious tomorrow, and that's why this work is so important. And I, I don't want to put a damper on this. I would just say, what I, what I used to tell my students, you know, um, African Americans were um, enslaved people in this country from 1619 on. And it was 250 years, basically, before slavery came to an end with the 13th Amendment and the Civil War. But all of the time, um, from the very beginning, there were people who said this is wrong. Um, people who said we shouldn't, we shouldn't enslave other human beings. And they didn't live to see the end of slavery, but they worked their whole lives to try to abolish slavery. Um, likewise, in the women's movement, the, women worked for more than a century to get the right to vote, which finally came in 1920, the year my mother was born. So, I mean, I, while I am encouraged by, by Mayor Dobbs' um, enthusiasm, um, I would caution us that even if this doesn't happen in the next year or two, um, it's something that's worth working on mm-hmm. and uh, devoting our time and energy to um, and passing the torch to the next generation if it doesn't happen in our lifetimes. Um, so...
You know what? I think that's a great place to end. I want to thank the panel for helping us really understand that we enter these conversations with our own assumptions and narratives around poverty and government and the intersection of the two. And I think I speak for most of us in this room to say that if we get this right, it will really transform our understanding of poverty and better equip us to dismantle it. Um, So thanks to all of you in the room who are doing this hard work. Thanks to you three for being part of it. Um, Thank you for scaring us into ending on time. (laughs) And we look forward to seeing you all for our next event. Thank you, Adrian. We 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 like to uh, usually open it to questions from the audience, but you did such a fantastic job of asking and all of you answering. Uh, and of course, Madam President, we want to get out on time, so we'll, we can all get back to work. So uh, we will leave it uh, at that. And thank you all, especially the teachers, for teaching us um, some amazing lessons. Dr. Robinson, uh, President Preckwinkle, Mayor Tubbs, for your your travel here to Chicago. You're you're welcome back anytime. Uh, and, of course, Adrian from the, uh, the Crown Family School. So thank you, not only for your remarks, but really uh, in the lesson, but for all of, all of the good that you're doing for our great city and county and, and country. Um, thank you. We'd like to invite you all back, um, hopefully to discuss results next time, you know, and, and see where, where this has, has, has come. So we will invite you back. I'll ask Jackie to, to come up, and we'll present a, a membership, one-year membership to each of you, um, to the City Club and hope that you'll come back on a very regular basis. We're going we're gonna to just discuss some not-so-radical ideas that you know, we're going to look back and realize that we're right in the middle of these incredible conversations. So thank you. Um, we do have a number of upcoming programs. For those of you who, who don't get the free one-year membership... There is a QR code on uh, your table. Please sign up. We've got some great things coming. Uh, a couple that uh, I think President Preckwinkle might want to join us for. Some topics that uh, are incredibly relevant today and tomorrow and, and uh, in the coming months. So please sign up. Come back. Um, before we go, and Jackie, I'll, uh, I'll ask uh, Jackie to come up so we can present these to each of our panelists. Um, but we also have to pick the raffle, most importantly. I'm going to ask King Harris to do this. Oh, that's Jackie's going to ask King Harris to pick our raffle. So we have uh, thank you to our friends at Chicago Cut uh, gift certificate. Mr. Harris is going to pick the winner, and I know it's hard to get in there, so please. Yeah. <laughs> and Lawrence Richardson from Huntington. All right, Lawrence. Lawrence, give me a call if you need help making the reservation. We have friends over there. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Mr. Harris, for all the good you do. And and thanks again. City Club is adjourned, and we hope to see you all very soon. Thank you to our panelists.